we are beginning a new series on a book of the Bible that I've been wanting to tackle for probably three years, but I've just been too afraid to touch it, if I'm really honest with you. Uh, the book of Genesis, um, we're going we're gonna to go through the whole book, and we're going to break from it in late spring and then into summer uh, to study the book of Ephesians, and then we're going to uh, resume it again next fall. So I guess maybe you're asking the question, why Genesis? And I don't want to get bogged down into answering that. I could give you uh, 10 different reasons why Genesis. But right now, I just want to give you uh, the, the simple answer. Uh, in light of what we just said right now, we love the Word of God. And God's Word is a story. And because it's a story, you can't really understand the story if you don't know the beginning. Because the beginning just sets the whole plot. You're introduced to the main characters and its themes. And, and so uh, that's why we're going to start Genesis. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1. Bear with me. We're going to read this whole chapter. Close your eyes if you have to, to just drink this in. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And he called the darkness, he called it night. Thus the beginning of time the markers of time. There was evening, there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing, plant bearing seed according to their kinds, and tree bearing fruit with seed in accordance to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and years, and days, and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. 
So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and say, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree uh, that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and to the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is God's word. You can be seated. So as you know, in our modern age, especially the last 100 years, this has been a much debated text. In fact, it's been a very divisive text within the church. And much of this is because uh, we come to a text like this with our own cultural lenses, our modern scientific worldview, which is laced with a little bit of intellectual snobbery, snobbery where we think we're the smartest generation to ever grace the planet, causing us then to quickly scrutinize and even dismiss a text like Genesis 1. And we see it as ancient, although I want us to know this is a masterpiece. I mean, these are the very words of God. And I think that we approach the text this way is because we right away assume what we know what it is about. That this text is here teaching us how the world came to be and then because Genesis 1 doesn't jive with our science or what we've been taught or the spirit of our age. Therefore, our Western world today at best views Genesis 1 as ancient and outdated and at worst as silly and irrelevant. Genesis 1 is not here to tell us how the world came to be. Not first and foremost. It's not here to tell us about dinosaurs or literal days, or the age of the earth, or evolution. That's us coming to this text with our cultural framework and our modern-day questions. It's us demanding uh, that this text be what we want it to be. It's us 
uh, making Genesis uh, be something on our terms uh, rather than understanding it on its terms. This text is here first and foremost to teach us about God. In the beginning, God. God is mentioned 33 times in this chapter. God created, God spoke, God saw, God separated, God called, God made, God established. And here's where we need to accept something about Genesis. Genesis was written for us, but not to us. And see, this is a very important distinction for us to make right now because when we understand that this text was not written to us, but for us, it then forces us to get in the shoes or in the context of the people that it was actually written to. And so Genesis is written by God through Moses to the Israelites after they were rescued from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And so to really understand this text, we have to get in those shoes of an ancient Israelite whose fathers and forefathers and they themselves had just come out of 400 years of slavery. And this God who mysteriously shows up and and rescues this people from all of that chaos is here in Genesis to say, let me introduce myself to you. Do you want to know who I am? And if you know that world, uh, that's a polytheistic world. Uh, They had a God for everything. Uh, In Egypt alone, there are thousands of deities. So God is here to tell them, I'm not that tribal God. I'm not the river God. I'm not the sun God. I'm not the moon God. I'm not that regional deity. I am the God who created the heavens and the earth. I'm that God. And the whole book of Genesis is about that God. The whole Bible is about that God. And so rather than us coming to Genesis with our cultural lenses, our our cultural snobbery and our agendas, asking if, if, if Genesis squares with modern science or evolution, we need to get into that world knowing that it was written to them, not to us, but still written for us. We need to understand that Genesis has its own agenda, and the agenda uh, of of the author, and the author who is God, is first and foremost to tell us about himself. We get four words into this text, and we have God. In the beginning, God. One of the guys uh, who mentored me and had a profound impact on my life is, is Ray Vanderlaan. And I remember him telling uh, me this story when he was studying in New York in a Jewish yeshiva. Uh, his first class, he, he walks into it and it's filled with all these Jewish guys with the long side curls and the yarmulkes. And these are guys that had the whole 
Old Testament memorized. And then the professor walks in and looks the whole class over and calls on a student in the front row and says, could you give me Genesis 1? And the student with a big smile on his face just starts reciting, in the beginning, God. Professor says, stop. And then he says again. And this student again recited, uh, in the beginning, God. And the professor again yelled out, stop. And this time, a longer pause. Then he said again. And the student this time, just saying it with just a little more passion, in the beginning, God, the professor for a third time said, stop. And then he looked the whole classroom over and says, if you don't believe those first four words, there's the door because the rest of this book will make no sense to you. And I think this rabbi is so right. If, if you don't believe the first four words of this book, the rest of this book will make zero sense. Do you believe in the beginning, God? Now, what we have in this text, and we can't quite see it fully, in the English, we could see it even more so uh, in the Hebrew, but this text as a literal, as a literary unit is, is a literary masterpiece. It's poetic. In fact, it's, it's, it's unlike any Hebrew poetry in the Bible. Uh, Hebrew poetry is always marked by patterns and repetitions and refrains that's what you have in Genesis 1 is, is, is this beautiful poem. And then if you know Genesis 2, you get a second telling of creation. And Genesis 2 actually reads more as prose. It's, it's historical narrative, but not Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is poetry, or better yet, you could say it's a song. And, and what we have in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, where you have song followed by prose, uh, this combination is also found in other parts of, of the Hebrew text. In Exodus 14, you have the historical narrative of his, Israel walking through those parted waters and God destroying the Egyptian army. And then in Exodus 15, you have the song of that event. And what the song does is it captures the actual beauty and the majesty of that event that the narrative can't quite do. Same in Judges 4, you have the historical narrative of Deborah leading Israel to defeat the mighty kings of Canaan, followed by Judges 5, uh, the, the, the beautiful song that's written to, to describe that event. And I don't want us to say right now that songs are fiction, in fact, in some way, songs are, are more true because songs can capture the wonder and the beauty, the mystery of things that are sometimes too awesome and too majestic for our finite minds to capture, especially through a simple definition. Thus, Genesis 1 is it's a song. It, it's a song about God, the creator of all things. In verse 1, it, it, it literally reads, and this is important that we see this, it reads this way, when in the beginning, God began to create. 
And see, when you read it that way, then verse two describes the state of things when God began to create. And so what these first two verses want us to see that when God creates, two realities exist. Of course, there's God. But verse 2, there's also something else. The tohu, they bohu. Even that sounds poetic. Tohu means formless. Bohu means empty. So what is tohu ve bohu? Well, again, its most simplistic definition is chaos. See, this is where we need more than a definition. Right now, do your best to try to imagine a reality of no form or forms. I mean, we take form for granted. What makes a tree a tree or a stream a stream, a dog a dog, a person a person? It's form. And every moment of, of every day, we are looking at various forms. And of course, we're so much than just a form. We're a form with a function. A tree not only looks like a tree, but it functions like a tree. A chair not only looks like a chair, but hopefully it functions as a chair. Uh, in fact, when Form loses function, it's either broken or perverted or evil. This is the chaos. This is tohu vevohu. No form, no function to anything. And this is almost unimaginable to us because even to, to think that something is beautiful or meaningful or truthful, it requires form and function. Even words and language uh, to, to make sense of beauty, truth, and meaning require form and function. And so it's tohu vevohu. It's a formless and empty reality. It's actually something that is essentially Nothing, if that makes sense. Well, if it doesn't make sense to you, this is what the existential thinkers of the last 200 years who laid the groundwork for our postmodern world today, uh, because they are the prophets who, who warned a modern world, a, a world that had grown tired of its belief in God and was growing out of uh, this 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 childish thing of belief in a God, but yet... the the postmodern thinkers warned us in light of this, a tsunami of tohu vev bohu is, is on its way. Frederick Nietzsche said, God is dead. <laughs> We've killed him. Therefore, life isn't a party or a beach. He says, life is meaningless. It's horrifically empty. John Sartre's classic work, Being in Nothingness, I mean, he spends hundreds of pages attempting to state who we are as humans in a world where truth, meaning, and beauty are barely a blur. 
where even words and language are diminished to almost nothing. Samuel Beckett probably takes the cake because he actually tries to describe tohu vevohu, what it, what it would look like or, or, or how we would experience, how we are to experience it. Uh, in his play, The End Game, which is this awfully depressing story about two guys, Ham, who is blind and cannot stand, and Clove, who can see but can't sit. And they're stuck in this gray, empty room with two windows. And outside the room is the new modern world, this wasteland of tohu ve bohu. At one point, Clove looks out the window and Ham asks, what do you see? He replies, zero. He looks again, zero. He looks out the window again, zero. Ham says, well, what about the sun? Clove just says, zero. But shouldn't it be descending? Look again. And Clove looks. Damn the sun. You mean it's night already? No. Then what is it? Clove looks. And all he says is, gray. 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 Really? Gray? Yes, gray, from pole to pole. The gray is all he can see. And why gray? Because gray is the color of nothingness. I don't want to remind you, but those four months of winter are on the horizon. It's not the winter, it's not the cloud, it's not the cold. It's the clouds. It's the gray. And I'll add to that, four months of that. And on one particular morning where there's just this foggy mist where you can't see three feet in front of you, that's but a hint of tohu vevohu. And that's why this gets to us. Tohu vevohu is there's no contract, contrast, there's not even black or white, it's, it, it's all, all gray. Uh, it's not just something that, that we can imagine with our eyes, but, but greater hints of, of tohu uh, vevohu in our world might be seen in natural disasters like a tsunami or things that we've witnessed recently on the news, the fires in Hawaii or the flooding in, in Libya where form and function are just devastated, where you see the unmaking of human life in villages and neighborhoods, houses, where it's everywhere, or even take man-made disasters like deforestation or even worse, a Nagasaki or a Hiroshima. These things reek of tohu vevohu, of decreation and desolation and destruction. You know, while it's almost impossible for humanity to imagine tohu vevohu, we still fear it, don't we? We still sense its possibilities uh, and, and, and leave it to the artist to tease these kind of things out. I mean, think about movies like Mad Max or The Day After Tomorrow. 
And it's not just, again, things that our eyes can see. It's not just uh, uh, the natural world, but governments, social structures, communities, relationships can become tohu vebohu. They, they can become these wastelands of, of desolation and, and, and can become formless and functionless and lawless and all of that. Our lives can go colorless, can go gray. Our identity and our purpose in this world uh, can become formless and functionless and meaningless. You have no truth, you have no convictions, you have no great passions or causes or purposes to your life. It's all just a gray mist. Or if you know the story, think about Israel. Um, Here's a people that were given such a grand identity and purpose in the world. They're God's special people and God's special place to be a light to the nations. But when they go into exile, it all becomes desolate. And the way Jeremiah the prophet describes uh, this devastation to Israel would have sent shivers down their spine. Jeremiah says, I looked and behold, it was tohu vebohu. Nothing in the biblical imagination is more devastating than tohu vebohu, formlessness and void or emptiness. And who is God? Who is God? God is the one who moves into the tohu vebohu and turns a wasteland of desolation into a universe of beauty and harmony and shalom. This is what Genesis 1 is here to tell us. This is who God is. This is what Genesis, uh, the book, is about and what the whole Bible is about. It's about this God. Do you know this God? Do you see this God? Have you experienced this God like we heard this morning in the baptisms of how he can turn ashes into beauty and devastation into shalom? How he can turn the desolation into a paradise? I mean, even the literary quality of Genesis 1, no other part of the Bible um, has this much structure and, and, and rhythmic and, and, and order as what Genesis 1 has. Genesis 1 is really more than a song. It's a symphony. It's a symphony of repeated parts and phrases and refrains. Just read it this week. And God said, and it was so. And he called, and according to their kinds. And it was evening, and it was morning. And all of these uh, phrases work together in, in order to produce this beautiful harmony. Because this is who God is. God is the God of infinite order and beauty. And this is seen not only in what God creates, but also how God creates. 
So I don't know if you know this, but the ancient world is, is filled with creation accounts, Egyptians, Babylonians, Persians, Canaanites, later the Greeks and the Romans, they all had their narratives of, of how the world came to be. And in all of them, creation is this act of war. It's bloody and it's violent. Much like our theory of evolution is today, the survival of the fittest, the strongest, triumphing violently over the weak and the lesser. Not with this God. When he creates, it's calm, it's ordered. No one gets hurt, no blood, no gore, no death. His universe is not created through war and violence, but through peace and speaking. God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And this is how each day begins. And I think rather than us getting hung up on the length of a day, the text wants us to see the symphony of order and beauty to each day that each stanza brings. So when you look closely then at the first three days, God forms a formless world, and then the next three days, God fills an empty world, or you could say, uh, in days one, two, th one through three, God is taking on the tohu, and in days four through six, he's taking on the bohu. He's forming and he's filling a formless and an empty world. And then when you still even look closer, uh, day one corresponds with day four, day two corresponds with day five, and day three corresponds with, with day six. And here's a PowerPoint to kind of flush that out. In days one to three, God forms all the spaces of the universe, and he does this by separating and naming, and whatever God names something to be, it becomes that thing. And then days four to six, God fills those spaces with entities whose function is to bring order, beauty, meaning, and harmony to the realms that it inhabits. And again, how does God accomplish all this? Through the simple power of his word. And God said, let there be light. And it was so. And God said, let there be sky. And it was so. God created the whole world through his word. And his word went into the tohu vevohu, the desolation, the chaos, and brought about order, beauty, harmony. And this universe just exploding with life. In fact, some words that almost go unnoticed in this account, simple words like all, every, everything, Verse 21, every winged bird. Verse 25, all the creatures that move. Verse 26, all the wild animals. Verse 28, every living creature. Verse 29, every tree that has fruit. Verse 31, almost the magnum opus statement. And God saw all that he had made. And it was all very good. In fact, I think what it says in verse 20, 
that the waters teemed with life could be said about everything that God creates. The whole universe is teeming. It's just think about this. It's, it, it's teeming with the pro- proliferation of planets and stars and ecosystems and creatures and species. There's this, this explosion of life and beauty and diversity, all in this state of flourishing and super abundance. God is not a minimalist. In fact, just think about right now, why have a few different kind of species in the world when you can create eight million species? Eight million species. And, and, and why create a black and white world when you can create a human eye that can distinguish between 10 million colors? I remember the first time I scuba dived. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. Not only were there fish everywhere, but it was like all these shapes, all these different colors. It just caused me to weep. Like, why did God make this? It's who He is. He isn't a minimalist. He loves abundance, super abundance. Even think about how, how we are made, and we're going to talk about more about these day six in, in, in the weeks to come, but, but, but God didn't just give us eyes so that we could see, but our eyes can actually look at things and delight. He didn't just give us mouths so we could take in food, but he gave us taste buds. But what about the stars? I mean, do I even go there? Astronomers estimate that there are 300 billion stars, not in the world, just in our Milky Way galaxy. And there are two trillion galaxies. And the psalmist says, and God knows all the stars by name. And our text says, and God looked at what he had made and said, it's good. It is very good. And I want you to know, when, when God says this, this is not a discovery. This is a declaration because we need to see who's saying this. It's not Adam. It's not Eve. It's not humans who are looking at creation and saying, this is very good. God is looking at everything that he has made, the author of life, the one who is not just holy or holy, holy, but who is holy, 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 he is the one who says, is good. And he is the object of everything. And this is why we, as subjects, when, when, when we insist on, on, on being the arbitrators of what's good and, and what's evil, 
evil becomes subjective. I mean, listen, what I might call good, you, you might say that same thing is evil. And this is where our whole culture is right now. I mean, what half of our culture calls good, the other half calls it evil. And then who's right? And who gets to determine in our world what's good and what's not good and, and what's evil? Well, at the subjective level, it's the one who has the most power, the most propaganda, and in a subjective setting, the bully always wins. Just look at history. But good and evil is not for us to decide. This is God's world, and God is the creator, and he is the only one who is good, and he is then, therefore, the only one who can declare this is good. And humanity ought to submit itself to that God. Just look at this God in Genesis 1. Moving into all the formless chaos, the meaningless desolation. He starts in the furthest realm of the expanse. And all the while, he's moving to the realm of the skies above. And then finally makes it to the realm of planet Earth, and he's creating, and he's forming, and he's filling a formally, formless and empty reality. And at the end of the sixth day, when the work is complete, there's then the seventh day where it says God rested. God rested. What does this mean? God, like, took a nap? <laughs> uh, does, does, does it mean that he got tired from this? Dave Helm, in his book, The Genesis Factor, talks about how as a kid, his dad had this big ottoman chair, and being one of eight kids, they all knew that they could sit in this chair at any time, except when dad came home, uh, that chair was his chair, and everyone immediately got out of the chair, and, and he describes how his dad then would descend uh, into that chair, put his feet up on the ottoman, and rest from a busy day, and he says this, he says, you know, as a, as a child, when dad was in that chair, all in our home was good. Life was good. And he says, even though, you know, dad was resting, sometimes you'd look at him and his eyes would be closed and, and, and you might think he's, he's sleeping, but this was not passive rest because if anything happened in our, heart, in our house, uh, dad would be up immediately. And then he says, because when dad was in his chair, everything was under his control, under dad's control, and everything was at peace. As he rested from that chair, it was all, he says, wonderfully good. And you see, this is where creation is moving. It's, it, it, it's moving somewhere. It's moving to the seventh day where God takes his place in his chair on his throne where he can rest because everything in his house, which is the entire universe, is under his control, and it's all wonderfully good. Creation, then, is God's kingdom come. It starts in the heavenlies, and for six days, God's kingdom comes and it makes its way to earth all the while pushing out the dreaded tohu ve bohu, bringing order and beauty and harmony, this flourishing, this universe that's just 
teeming with life. And then at the end of the sixth day, the king looks at his kingdom and declares, this is good, it's very good. And then on the seventh day, the king takes his place on the throne and he rests. And what is God's rest? It is his rule. I want us to see that only on the seventh day is there no, and it was evening, and it was morning. Why? Because God's rule has no end, and he shall reign forever and ever. And when creation worships this king, which it was made to do, and submits to him and lives under that rule, life is good. Very good. Do you know this? Do you know this, God? Can your heart really say, in the beginning, God? See, God is not just someone that we acknowledge. He isn't the buddy that we just carry around in our back pocket. He isn't some good luck charm or some sugar daddy. He is the creator of the universe. And as the creator, he is its rightful king. And how do we respond to this? This God. I'll tell you how they're responding in his courts. Right now, John, who's brought up into those courts, he describes it this way. He says, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And he said, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on that throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They take their crowns, they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things, and by your will, they were created and have their being. How do we respond to this, God? We worship him. We worship. worship. We worship him with our song. We worship him with our voices. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. We worship him with our lives. We worship him with our talents, with our money, with our possessions. We worship him on our Sundays and our Mondays and all the days of our lives. We are to bow before him and adore him and worship, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, power, and wisdom because you have created all things. Do you worship him? Do you fill the hours of your day seeking him, loving him, delighting in him, magnifying him? Or do you seek yourself? Do you love yourself? Do you magnify yourself? And he is a king. 
And the way we relate to a king is different than the way you relate to a friend or a boss because with a king, you bow and you kneel and you hand over your sword and you give up control and you submit and you offer him your entire allegiance. God is the king which means we don't come to him on our terms. We don't make him fit into our agenda. We don't play around with his word and make it serve us. Instead, we bow, we trust him with everything. We trust him with our past and our present and our future. We trust him in our relationships. We trust him with our successes, with our failures. We trust him in our joys and in our sufferings. We give up control of our money, our lives. We give up control of our time and our talents. We literally hand over our entire life to him. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And when we do this, the kingdom of God breaks into our lives, into our chaos, into our tohu vevohu, into our formless, fragmented, meaningless aspects of, of, of our days. And his spirit comes and fills us with his presence, his life giving presence, and his rest becomes our rest. God, open the eyes of our heart that we could see you high and lifted up. God, as we see you, May we bow and worship you with every, every ounce of our being, all that we are, because we see you sitting on your throne as the creator of all things. We bless you.